talking to Celine Higton, dentist uh, with a special interest in restorative and cosmetic dentistry at uh, Woodborough House Dental Practice. Welcome Celine. Thank you for joining us. Can we start by just uh, asking you how has restorative dentistry and in particular direct restorative dentistry changed over the last 20 years and what does that mean for restorative clinicians today? Um, I think many dentists would agree whether they're newly qualified or have been qualified for decades that restorative dentistry has changed beyond all recognition over the last 20 years even over the last 10 years there's been a seismic shift from mechanical mechanically retentive dentistry to chemically adhesive dentistry so the moment we realized we could effectively and consistently bond to wet dentine is the moment that everything has changed beyond all recognition Dentistry used to rely on mechanical retention much more because we weren't able to bond in this way. The enamel bond has been around for decades and decades, but the dentine bond has been around for much less time. And before then, the only way to predictably place restorations, whether they were direct or indirect, was using mechanical retention. So if we look at uh, dental amalgam, for example, direct dental amalgams, the cavity design for those was involved in undercut so that you place your amalgam it sets and it's locked in mechanically retentively our crown preparations were very tall with very minimal taper almost parallel so that the crown's almost kind of locked on and you don't need that cement whereas nowadays because we can predictably bond to even wet dentine and many studies actually say you can get a better bond to wet dentine than you can to dry enamel if it's done by the letter, by the book. It's still contentious in many fields, but many studies are showing it more and more. Now we can focus our, 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 our work on the adhesion rather than the mechanical retention, which means we can design our cavity preparations driven in by the defect. Our cavity preparations are defect driven, basically. So our dentistry now, by being minimally retentive, we're having to think about how we're going to stick something to the tooth. So. Whereas in the past, it was more a case of, as I said, cut and undercut, parallel crown preparation, and you can get your restoration on. And I'm not saying dentistry in the past was easy by any means. I see, I see restorations and crowns that have been in patients' mouths for 40, 50 years. I think, how on earth is that still there? It's some sort of witchcraft and wizardry that I couldn't understand. However, saying that, this chemically adhesive dentistry that we do now relies on that bond so we have to do every single step properly we have to follow it by the letter and if we don't it will fail and it will fail prematurely which is what happens people say amalgam is better than composite it lasts longer than composite false composite can last just as long if it's done by the letter and every little step is followed and within that is the the external environment very important how, how does that contribute to your practice of dentistry it's, it's fundamental. The external environment, the environment within which we're working as dentists is the mouth. The mouth is wet, it's dark, it's mobile, it's hopefully on the end of a live patient. You've got tongue, lips, everything in the way. So going back to what I was just saying about mechanically retentive versus chemically adhesive dentistry, this chemically adhesive dentistry relies on having a dry and clean bonding surface. If there's a biofilm there, i.e. if there's any plaque or bacteria, your bond will fail. If it's wet, your bond will fail. 
or it will fail prematurely. It might not be instantaneous, but it will fail. So the working environment of the mouth, high bacterial load, wet with saliva, is not conducive to this modern dentistry. So we have to change it. We have to adapt. I use rubber dam. Um, I think everyone who knows of me knows I use rubber dam. I'm probably rubber dam's biggest fan. And my main reason for that is exactly what I've just said there. If we want to be doing minimally invasive adhesive dentistry, which is the dentistry of today and the future, then we've got to be adjusting our working environment to eliminate those variables like the wriggling tongue, the wet mouth, the bacteria, etc., from our working environment. So is that where your methodology comes from? Because you've got a very specific methodology for posterior composite restorations. So can you talk us through the, I think there's four steps to it. Yeah. So can you, t can you talk us through, the, through each of the four steps? Yeah, absolutely. And it is exactly that, it comes from that. So when I qualified actually, I um, ended up in a practice that was a great practice, but didn't have any rubber dam equipment. And I, by this point already, I was a rubber dam fan. And the practice principal said, fine, go, go out, go out and buy, you know, go ahead and order what you want. And it was at that point I started thinking, okay, ooh, square clamp, square tooth, asymmetric clamp, asymmetric tooth. So before my love for posterior composites even developed, before my love for min minimally invasive biomimetic adhesive dentistry even developed, it was the love for rubber dam. And by getting good at rubber dam, I then gave myself a working environment which facilitated all of that dentistry which has since come. So the four steps that you discussed there, number one, the foundation to the building is rubber dam isolation. Number two, I guess the walls of the building is your cavity preparation. Number three, let's go with the separate floors of the building, is your matrixing. Finally, number four is the composite placement itself and that's your roof. You cannot place a roof on a building that's got a poor foundation, poor walls, poor floors, it will, it will collapse. But unfortunately, you do see a lot of the teaching and a lot of the emphasis and the onus these days is on the composite placement. But if you don't follow the steps one, two and three first, the composite placement will be doomed to fail prematurely as well. So it all, all hinges on that foundation. Get that right, the rubber dam, then you can get your cavity preparation right. Get that right, then you can get your matrixing right. Get that right, then you can get your composite placement right. And that's how, it's not just in my opinion, I know there are many clinicians who think of it this way, um, and that's how composite restorations will be built to last. Why do you think that dentists don't use rubber dam? Or some dentists don't use rubber um, dam? It's a, it's a lack of knowledge, really. Um, rubber dam is not a treatment. Therefore, it can be passed by the wayside, much like dental photography. So if you don't know how to do it, it is the most frustration, frustrating thing. It's like maths. I used to love maths at school, loved it, when I knew the equation. If I didn't know the equation, it's like smacking your head against the wall. Rubber dam is exactly the same. If you don't know how to do it, all it does is it just serves to frustrate you and you just want to throw it out the window. So unfortunately at dental school, there's a lot of amazing teaching, but when I was there, the rubber dam teaching was, here's a clamp, here's the dam, get it on. And it was potluck as to whether it stayed on or not. So there's a bit of a hole, a bit of a kind of a gap in the teaching really, in rubber dam and there's, a, there's very few clinicians who really teach it and mostly we're self-taught. I was lucky enough to be self-taught from that practice, from buying those individual items. Um, so there is just a gap in, in knowledge really in how it's done and because it's not a treatment it's not taught that much, it's taught as an afterthought. And then because people don't know how to do it fully it frustrates them and they don't use it and they just go with what they know. You can't abandon a composite halfway through, you can't abandon the veneer preparation halfway through because it's a treatment, but you can abandon the rubber dam if it's not working out for you. 
So you've talked a little bit there about uh, about clamps. Can you just run through the main considerations when you're selecting and, and placing clamps? Yes. In my opinion, and not just my own, many others, clamp choice is key. Clamp choice is the backbone of rubber dam isolation. And I might just think that because that's what started off my 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 progress into, into learning it. Um, essentially, if your clamp is the wrong shape, it won't fit. And the aim of the clamp, the role of the clamp, is to stabilise the dam and anchor it in the mouth. What it will have to do when the dam is then stretched over the frame, it will have to resist the tension in the dam. So if it's the wrong shape, it will, as soon as it's put under tension, it will fly off. Or if it's placed correctly in the tooth, incorrectly in the tooth. So if, for example, you've got an asymmetric tooth, like an upper second molar and upper third molar, and you use a square clamp, it may just kind of go on it and it might be a bit rocky, but as soon as you put that dam on, it will fly off because it's not engaged properly. Whereas that same square clamp, if it's used on a lower first molar, which are very square, a lower second molar, even more square, it kind of clicks into the undercut. You can check its fit by pressing and it's solid. No matter how much tension you put on that dam, that clamp isn't going anywhere. So the clamp shape and fit is essential and having a really good range of different clamps because you do have a range of different teeth and different sizes. And in, in my opinion, there's nothing more frustrating than being able to do 80% of treatments and then 20% don't work for whatever reason. And I think that's most people's frustrations with rubber dam because they've maybe got one clamp to work with. And then when they do need to clamp that really fiddly third molar, they try, clamp flies off and they give up and they think, well, I can't do this. But actually it's just not quite having the right shape clamp it's almost like having one golf club to do a round of golf with you know you're not going to get a good score if you do, I don't even play golf but if you're going to do a round of golf with a sand wedge you're not going to go all that well uh, and that's kind of the way I look at it with really with clamps and do you do you expose a single single tooth or multiple uh, teeth. Multiple teeth. So multiple tooth exposure. Um, the aims and objectives of using rubber dam, the reason we're doing it is one, to simplify our working environment to remove all, the, all of those different variables, uh, but also to improve our access and vision. So if we just clamp one tooth and isolate one tooth, often, especially if it's a posterior tooth, a second or third molar, by the time you stretch the dam around the frame, the dam's almost formed a funnel. So if anything, you've kind of limited your access and your vision. So by exposing multiple teeth in the arch, you improve your access and vision. The dam stretches out a bit more, but if you're placing a direct restoration, a direct composite, you then have the other teeth to use as reference points because nature, nature is, um, is very deliberate. It's not random. So if you're looking to recreate a cusp on a sit on a first molar, you can then copy the second molar or even kind of the buckle cusp of the premolar. So it gives you access, vision, and kind of a reference. Um, so for me, even for root canals, multiple tooth, as long as it's properly inverted, properly flossed, properly placed and there's no pink gum on show, multiple tooth isolation is the gold standard. And when you're preparing a, a cavity um, mm -hmm. in cavity prep, how important is it to conserve as much of the tooth as possible? Very good question again. So. I actually use this on, the, on a course I teach, minimally invasive does not translate as conserve as much tooth as possible. And what that means is, a lot of the time cavity preparations, especially in the old school days, we used to cut our proximal box and then our dovetail to lock our amalgam in. But if we think about caries and where it sits on the tooth, caries sits just beneath the contact point. The contact point is a point. But the reason the caries sits there is because of the plaque biofilm that sits there, because we all don't love to floss. <laughs> so caries is never a point, it's a line. 
So if we have a cavity preparation that's just a little slot, we'll have two bits either side of demineralized enamel that will have a poor bond strength. And those areas will be exactly where the patient doesn't floss. You can't access it with a toothbrush and the bond will be poor. So that's where the secondary caries comes in. That's where the decay comes in. That's why the composite fails. So actually by removing more, by opening up our cavity preparations, by sorcerizing our preparations, is what a lot of people say these days, we're being more minimally invasive because that tooth will then have that restoration in place for much longer. Minimally invasive means limiting the restorative cycle. If you can delay the restorative cycle from small filling to medium filling to large filling to root canal to core to post to crown, if you can just place a small filling that then lasts 20 years and then all of those other items are delayed, that's minimally invasive dentistry. It's not necessarily removing as little tooth structure as possible. Okay. So it's just a different way of, of thinking about it. Exactly. You know, just a different mindset. Exactly. It's, it's, and it was, it was a mindset that took a lot for me to develop as well. I remember when I learned to do this myself and even kind of when you've got an undermined cusp, for example, get rid of the cusp and build over it. I used to think, oh my gosh, all that healthy enamel, all that healthy tooth, I don't want to remove it. But actually by not removing it, that restoration will fail sooner and maybe even more catastrophically. And therefore that patient will end up losing their tooth sooner essentially. So that's how it's minimally invasive. So I've heard you talking about bond maximising protocols. Can you just explain what you mean by that? So bond maximising protocols essentially are the steps I undertake and many clinicians undertake in order to maximise that bond strength. So back at the start of this session we were discussing how dentistry has moved from mechanically retentive to chemically adhesive. Chemically adhesive relies on that bond strength. So we want to do as many things as we possibly can to increase that bond strength. So number one is provide a dry area to work within. So placing rubber dam, removing all saliva. Number two is a clean area to work in. So removing the biofilm, removing plaque. Three, air abrasion. And that's part of that cleanliness. So if we're using air abrasion, it doesn't have to be a fancy aquacare. It can be an orthoblaster as long as there's some form of air abrasion because that will remove the biofilm. One of the biggest causes of bond breakdown, bond failure, is presence of biofilm. And a lot of clinicians believe, as I used to, as we all did one day, that believe that plaque will remove the biofilm, but it doesn't. The only thing that will remove biofilm is pumice, <clears throat> air abrasion, or there are some solutions you can use to dissolve it, but etch, Phosphoric acid etch will not remove it. So bond maximising protocols, a dry working area, clean working area, air abrasion, using a gold standard bond. So again, this is quite contentious and this isn't me working with any particular brands for any particular reasons. I follow evidence-based dentistry. But according to a lot of the evidence, there are two real gold standard bonds. That's Optibond FL and that's SE bond. And both of them are separate two-bottle bond systems, adhesive systems with a primer and a bond. And by doing it that way, you can then increase your bond strength to dentine. Cavity preparation is key. So having those open cavity preparations, removing caries in the right areas. But lastly, a big, big thing is beveling in the enamel surface. So a lot of dentists, whether they are minimally invasive adhesive dentists or mechanically retentive dentists who don't necessarily want to change their ways, all dentists will say that the bond strength to enamel is king, really. Bond strength to dentine can be very, very high as long as it is done by the letter. The bond strength to enamel is much more forgiving. So if you can bevel your enamel, you'll increase your surface area of enamel to bond to, 
therefore you'll increase your bond strength. So these are all separate different protocols. There are many, many protocols and there are many outlined in different papers and different journals, but these are all separate little protocols that will increase that bond strength to the point where it can withstand failure, essentially. And so is that where immediate dentine sealing fits in Exactly. As well? That's exactly where immediate dentine sealing fits in. So again, all the studies show, literature shows, has done for many, many years, many decades, 20 plus years actually immediate dentine sealing has been around. And when I first discovered it, I thought, oh, right, let's seal the dentine. It will stop sensitivity once I've prepared a tooth. And yes, that's part of the reason, but there is so much more to it. The bond to dentine between composite and dentine matures over time. So it matures over minutes, hours, days, weeks. If we have a very deep cavity, for example, the deeper our cavity, the larger our dentine tubules, the more wet the dentine, the harder it is to bond to. So we've got a very deep cavity. Imagine this scenario, a very deep cavity. We've done all our bond protocols, etc. We've cleaned it, etched, done our prime bond. And then we place our first layer of composite straight away. What happens to composite when we cure it? It shrinks slightly and it shrinks towards the light source or it shrinks away from the weakest bond. So we have just bonded to dentine. We've not given it any time to mature. Our composite shrinks. That shrinkage stress will pull away from that dentine bond on the floor of the cavity because that bond wasn't strong enough to withstand the shrinkage stress of the composite. If we leave that dentine for five minutes, so immediate dentine sealing means prime bond cure, resin coat is a half layer of flowable composite on top, cure, leave that for five minutes, that bond between the dentine and the composite on top will be strong enough to withstand any shrinkage stress from the composite. So you'll then be able to place your composite, cure it, even if it's a small increment, cure it, and it won't pull up away from the dentine on the cavity floor, which means the patient won't get that horrible post-operative sensitivity where occasionally I bite on an almond and I get a really sharp pain. And you think, is there a crack? Is there a problem? But it's often a failure with the bonding on the cavity floor and that will increase your dentine bond strength. And can you explain uh, the different techniques that you use for posterior composites and what the key differences in each of those techniques are? Yeah, so there's, there's many different techniques um, and I'm a big believer in use what works in your hands as well. I've been taught by many clinicians, I've had the good fortune to be taught by many clinicians, amazing clinicians around the world and everyone uses a different technique for different reasons. So I've got a variety for horses for courses, essentially. So the three main techniques I use are, number one, cusp by cusp, meaning paste composite, placing a cusp, modeling it on, curing it, and building it cusp by cusp. And that, I think, is the most well-known technique for posterior composite placement. The next technique I'll use is cusp by cusp, but with injectable composite. So the Genial Universal Injectable Composite by GC, um, great wear resistance, great fracture resistance, is used for injectable composite cases and works brilliantly for cusp by cusp as well. The last technique I'll use is the fast modelling technique, which is, a, the concept is essentially where you place the whole occlusal layer as one and then you model your cusps in, slice them apart with a fine instrument like a fissura and then kind of nudge them together with a, with a micro brush. Not so much so that they're actually one unit of composite. They still got slight cracks between them. In doing so, you completely eliminate the risk of C factor there. 
and then you cure it and then you fill the cracks, the fissures with flowable composite or tint or whatever you choose to use. So these three techniques, different time and a place. Paste composite is still the gold standard for composite in terms of wear resistance, fracture resistance, etc. Polishability. Although that genial universal injectable is, is, is up there. But paste composite, gold standard, if I've got a case where I've got lots of time and the patient is potentially quite demanding or something like that and I really want to produce something that is artistically great but also functionally great then that's when I use the cusp by cusp approach but it will take much longer to model paste composite takes much longer than modeling flowable composite so that's when I use that that technique there it's also a little bit easier I find to get the occlusion right so if the patient is a bruxist parafunction etc that's when I'm probably going to use kind of the gold standard textbook um, um, technique. The cusp by cusp with flowable composite, um, I'm using that more and more, more and more because the material's better. I simply didn't do it in the past because flowable composites just weren't there in terms of wear resistance and structural you know, strength etc. Whereas now they are there so I don't see why not to use it and it actually you get these lovely organic shapes, there's no straight lines in nature and the beauty of using the flowable is you kind of dribble it on cusp by cusp and the GUI, the, the genial universal injectable, is, is kind of stays in place. What's beautiful about it is you can dribble it in place and it stays there and you can model it slightly with a micro brush or a brush and then cure it and you get these lovely organic shapes. It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, so that's a cusp by cusp approach but it's a bit quicker. So I'll use it on those same demanding patients uh, but if I've got a bit less time the fast modelling technique is a technique that's really useful if you really don't have as much time. So if you're running a bit late, as we all do as dentists, it's still a technique that works very well, but it just takes a bit less time. My limitations with it, I find your knowledge of anatomy needs to be much better because you're doing it all in one go. Cusp by cusp is a bit more forgiving. You can model one cusp and then think, well, actually, that wasn't quite right. I can add to that. But the fast modelling technique, you're kind of drawing on your tooth. So I think the limitations with that are knowing your occlusal anatomy. So as I said, horses for courses. My favourite at the time is cusp by cusp um, with injectable, but it kind of changes depending on the case, really. And what, what are your stress-reducing uh, protocols when you're placing composites? So stress-reducing protocols, that's with regard to the composite placement itself. So shrinkage stress is real. <laughs> it's a real thing. And no matter how much bulk fill companies, I won't name any brands here, but bulk fill companies claim that you can just shove it right in five millimetres up and cure it, it doesn't work. That will shrink and it will put stress. There is no bond, there is no bond to dentine that can withstand that level of shrinkage. And if it does, what will happen is it will just pull away from the tooth itself. So sometimes, let's say your bond maximising protocols are so good, but your stress... Uh, protocols are low, actually what will happen is your bond is so good that when your shrinkage stress occurs it will, it will rip enamel prisms away from the enamel. So those white lines that appear on restorations, you've done a restoration, it's happened to me, it's happened to everyone, white lines appear, you've done your restoration, you're polishing and you've got a white line on one edge, it shows that your shrinkage stress was too high for the bond strength that you had and it's pulled away from the edge of the enamel. So what can we do? We can reduce our C-factor. So by opening out our cavity preparations, by saucerizing our preps, we reduce our C-factor, which means that our ratio of bonded to unbonded walls is, is more favourable, essentially, and you're, get, you're less likely to get a bond failure. 
what else can we do? We can place our composite in increments. Now, we don't need to place 30,000 different increments. I'm a big believer in practical dentistry. I realise that in theory, in labs, a lot of the time these little increments work very, very well. But actually, in reality, that can be much harder to reproduce on a live patient. So I do believe in increments, but to a point. So placing increments, but also working with different materials. So for example, fibre-reinforced composites or working with ribbon fibres. By using fibres, essentially, when the composite shrinks, the fibre then dissipates that shrinkage stress. So working, for example, if I've got a very large composite, a very large cavity, I'll use potential, I'll, use, I'll start with Everex posterior, which is designed to replace dentine in that way and absorb that shrinkage stress. That's what the fibres are in it for. I'll then layer on with some Everex flow. I'll then layer on with my either my GUI A2 or AE or my Accord A2 or AE. And by layering it that way, you're respecting the modulus of elasticity of the tooth, you're respecting your bond strength to the wall, but you're also respecting your shrinkage of your material. So you're using a material in such a way that will combat your shrinkage. So the key to that really is material choice and increments. Okay. And when it comes to the final occlusal layer, yeah. what, what are the main considerations that you think of when you're choosing a material to... For, for that particular part of the restoration? The final occlusal layer really, in my, for my, in, in my opinion, it's shrinkage stress isn't so much of an issue at this point. That's, shrinkage stress needs to be kind of, that looks at, that's the body of the restoration. Your final occlusal layer, we want a material that doesn't slump. And that, I mean, when we're placing posteriors, we don't want it, you know, you don't want to place a composite and have modelled it into a position and then you go to get your light cure and two seconds later the composite's like that. So you want your composite to stay where you left it to sit, essentially. So we want a material that doesn't slump. You want a material that will polish well. We want a material that will wear well. We want a material that's got good, good, good fracture resistance. That's what we're looking for. My preference, actually, I, I like the translucent uh, material. So the AE shade, adult enamel, or you've got JE, junior enamel, but AE enamel. Um, adult enamel shade that's absolutely brilliant. If you're using something, for example, like Everex Flow Dentine underneath it, or any sort of composite dentine shade, and you can layer over that translucent enamel, you get this beautiful natural effect on the tooth where you literally your restoration disappears, and it's polishable, it wears well, fracture resistance, etc. So that's what I'm looking for in the material. And for that final occlusal layer, I'm looking to leave enough space to create that translucency and to be able to create the anatomy I want to create. Um, those, are the, those are the things that are important, in my opinion. So you've talked a little bit about um, Everex Posterior and Everex Flow. Do you always use them in the same situations when you're, when you're restoring a cavity? Yes and no. That's an annoying answer, isn't it? Um, if, it's, if it's necessary. So Everex Posterior, for me, is, it's a brilliant material for teeth that have been root canal treated. One, it's very transparent. You can see through it, basically. So. If you've got a cavity with a very, very high C-factor, so access cavities for root canal have the highest C-factor out there, then you want to be using a material that puts the least shrinkage stress on the, on, on the tooth, essentially. So that would be Everex Posterior or using something like Ribond as well. Uh, but Everex Posterior, that's where it stands. And what's brilliant about it for these cases as well is because it's translucent, if that root canal ever needs to be redone, if the composite ever needs to be dug through again, by the time you get through to the Everex posterior, you can literally see the, the orange GP shining through. So it's indicated for that reason as well. Um, but because of its translucency, I would never use it directly under an enamel. 
layer, for example. So my order will always be, if the cavity is large, if there's a large C factor, if it's very deep, Everex posterior, of course, immediate dentine sealing, resin coat, and then Everex posterior. They say you can, you can fill it up to four millimeters at a time. I still don't believe in bulk fill, I should, but I, I still would rather do kind of little two millimeter increments, cure, cure, um, and then the Everex flow dentine shade goes on top, and then I'll place my enamel layer. If it's a smaller restoration, C-factor isn't such a concern, or there hasn't been a root canal done, so I'm not gonna have to kind of go digging for GP later, um, then that's normally when I'll go probably straight for the Everex flow, only because I need to leave room for the aesthetics of the restoration. I've made the mistake in the past, like every clinician has, where you've thought Everex posterior is the one and you use it and you put your enamel layer straight on top and it just shines. If there's any sort of amalgam staining in that tooth, it will shine right through that restoration. So it's indicated for me, Everex posterior comes out in the, the big cavities. Yeah. Okay. And, and in those situations, always kind of, two millimetres cure, two millimetres. Yeah, rather yeah. Than and it's, I mean, as I, as I said, the manufacturer's instructions say it can be done more. However, that's with the curing light held at a certain proximity. So sometimes there's quite difficult access for these and they are really quite deep. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I don't want to risk it. Um, but essentially the Everex posterior has got longer, thicker fibres. So it's designed to kind of be the, 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 the building block of the two whereas the Everex Flow has got much shorter, thinner fibres. It's a bit more flexible as well, the Everex Flow. Um, so I think it's a better option using that with the posterior if it's a much larger cavity. So you've talked a little bit about uh, your use of Genial Universal Injectable. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you use it, perhaps in other procedures in practice? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's quickly becoming my favourite Thing to use. I mean, that's 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 a big thing to say because everything's my favourite thing to use. Everything's very important. Um, but the Genial Universal Injectable, um, firstly, the amount of shades there are is phenomenal. So you've got your dentine shades, you've got your enamel shades, you've got a bleach shade, um, which is almost better than kind of a bleach tint. But also, as a flowable, its properties are incredible in terms of fracture resistance, wear resistance, polishability. So it maintains its polish almost better than a lot of paste composites do. It's phenomenal. Um, so in the past, I actually only ever used it for injection molding cases, and it has been the go-to for many, many clinicians for injection molding because of its fracture resistance, etc., and because of its aesthetics, which are even becoming just they're just becoming better and better. So in the past, I only used it for these injection molding cases using a clear stent, etc., based off a wax up and injection molding composite, which can be a definitive treatment in itself, or can be the interim restoration for a full mouth reconstruction, for example, long term temporaries. That's how I make my long term long term temporaries. I'll always use Genial Universal Injectable as a long term temporary material um, because it's highly aesthetic, wears very well, and is so user friendly to use. Um, but it's recently um, that I've been using it for posterior restorations as well. And obviously it's, as I say, recent, it's within the last few months in my experience, in my hands. Many clinicians have been doing it for many years this way. Um, so again, there's plenty of literature showing it works very well for that. So like I said, the uses are becoming more and more prevalent. Again, I, I've considered using it for buccal cervical restorations as well. Um, it's quite flexible as well, so which could be very, very good for abfraction lesions, for example, which have been caused because of the flexion of the tooth. So using something like Everex Flow or Genial Universal Flow, injectable, sorry, for buccal cervical restorations, to me, the logic works because you want it to flex a little bit. The uses, are, the uses just, keep, keep, just keep getting better.
Yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It is the gift that just keeps on giving, exactly. Um, you're clearly very uh, passionate and enthusiastic about, about your dentistry. What, uh, who, who else do you look up to within, um, within the profession? Who are your gurus? Gosh, how, how long do you have? No, um, I, how did you tell that? So I, I'm very, very fortunate to have crossed paths with some incredible clinicians. Um, who do I look up to? David Jadol. Um, he's a French clinician, godfather of rubber dam, with a guy called Stéphane Braoué, who's Belgian, um, and they, their dentistry is so clean, so precise, everything I'd want it mine to be, essentially. Um, there's a guy called Thomas Taha, works in the UK, his precision is unbelievable, his was the very first course I did. Javier Tapia out in um, Spain, again, it's the level of precision from these dentists, the level of care, I think precision is the word. When, you, when I find a dentist, when I see a dentist and I see their work and I see neat, precise work, I think, my goodness, you care so much about your work. And sometimes in a photograph, does it matter if your dam is torn a bit? Does it matter if there's a bit of a drop of water? It doesn't, but when I see the level of precision that means that those things aren't often there, I think, wow, if your photographs are that precise, your work must be chef's kiss precision next level. So yeah, David Jadol, Javier Tapia, Stéphane Braoué in the States, Amanda C, Marcus Blatz, Adamo, Notar Antonio, Gold Star if you can say his name. In the UK we've got Manesh Patel, um, we've got George Cheatham. I mean there are clinicians all over the world. In Australia, Bharat Agrawal, Johan Choi. I, I can keep listing all these clinicians really. Anyone from Brazil, <laughs> I jest there but yeah. And when you, uh, when you talk about that precision, yeah. do you think that's achievable for dentists who are practising in the UK? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is going to sound incredibly cheesy, but it comes from within. Um, it's a philosophy, it's a mindset. And actually, um, on every course I teach, almost every lecture I give, I spend a significant amount of time at the start, maybe even 20 minutes, on mindset and approach. And we... Yeah, it's, it, it's obviously, uh, I say it comes from within, that it's a luxury to say that. I realise I work in this beautiful practice now, but I haven't always worked in this beautiful practice. I'm, I'm lucky enough to work in a high-end private practice now in the UK, but I did my, my, my years on the NHS in mixed dentistry, and of course, when you do not have the time to do this kind of work, then you can't, you know, then listening to someone like me speaking now, saying, yes, you know, it comes from within, this precision, then of course that would bring on frustrations. It comes from within when you've got the time and you've got the luxury to do it. And that's where I think any, any dentist who is working in a private setting, who has patients who are willing to part with their money for these high-end treatments, those dentists, that's when you should look within and think, right, I want to be precise. I want to use magnification. And I will say this and probably make many enemies doing it, but... If I'd say to patients, if your dentist is not wearing loops, find another dentist. And I, I say that being someone who I, I trained without loops. I did half of my first year qualified without loops. So I would have been the dentist that I'm telling patients to move away from. But that level of precision that we need for this minimally invasive adhesive dentistry is not possible with our human eyes. If we were hawks, maybe, but we're not. So that's, it comes from within, but there is a need to invest in the right equipment and the right, right materials, and of course have the right time and the right environment to do it. And is that where your philosophy of be the best you can be comes from? Is that e what you believe? Exactly, exactly. 
we all have our limitations wherever we work. We may work in mixed practice on the NHS, we may work in a really high needs area, we may work in hospital, we may work in a charity outreach centre somewhere in a foreign country. So we have to work within our limitations of course, but wherever we're working the voice in our head should be, be the best that you can be. It shouldn't be that'll do or that's good enough. Because we all know it, in dentistry, as soon as you say, you put on your clamp and it's not the right shape and it's rocking a bit and you go, oh, that's, that'll do. I've got five patients waiting, I'm running late, that'll do. And as soon as you're placing your bond and it's the most crucial part of your restoration, the clamp goes flying off. And that's when your dentistry, if you, if you say that'll do or that's good enough, it will come back and bite you. Whereas if you have a little voice saying in your head, be the best that you can be, and that's one of my favourite things to hear from a course delegates when they message the next day saying, so I channeled my inner Celine today or I listened to your words and I thought, be the best that you can be. And I thought, no, I'm going to fight to get that clamp and I did it. And that means not only will you be able to be more precise and do the work better, but you'll then, we will then improve by aiming to be the best that you can be. The only person you're competing with is who you were yesterday. I'm coming out with all the expressions here now, but if Usain Bolt was looking left and right as he was running the 100 metres, he would never have got all the world records he did. And that's us as dentists. I'm not saying we should run, but focus on what you're doing. Focus on who you were yesterday. Focus on improving and being the best that you can be. And each day we'll improve hopefully 1%, maybe, maybe even 0.1%. But a thousand days of improving 0.1% means that we'll improve 100%. That could be terrible maths. But essentially that's where the mindset comes from. It's always engaging that level. And what societies and groups would you recommend that dentists who are really interested in making such an improvement uh, belong to? Again, that's a really good question because there are so many. Um, I might be slightly biased on this. I recently joined Bioemulation as one of their members, um, which was a, a, a kind of the pinnacle of my career really. I think it's probably all downhill from here. I think it's a course with a bit of a twist because like I said, right at the start of this interview session, it focuses on those first three points mostly. Of course the composite placement is in the course because it's a composite course, but it focuses on the isolation, the cavity preparation, the matrixing. And I've not come across many courses that focus on that in as much level and that much detail. So whether you're a newly qualified dentist or a dentist who's been qualified many years or decades, I might be biased, but I think it's a great course to go on because it really goes into those foundation blocks and those building blocks and anyone would benefit from it, but especially if you haven't learned to use rubber dam before and you haven't learned about these modern principles with regard to cavity design and sectional matrixing, etc., then it's a really useful course to go on because it kind of covers that shift in a lot of detail. Great. Celine, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.